Hello, beautiful people. I intended to focus this week's episode on talking about my care coaching business and how that's going and all of that fun stuff. But as it turns out, uh, current events be happening. And I happen to be particularly interested in politics in a very obsessive sort of way and I have a lot of thoughts about this and well I have a platform so here we are if you are currently trying to distance yourself from political discourse for self-care and mental health reasons I do understand that so feel free to skip this episode I promise it's not going to be confrontational although I may become emotional at times I do get frustrated when people say, let's not talk about politics. I don't want to talk about politics. Don't make it political. Because that statement is rooted in so much fucking privilege. Because if you exist as part of a marginalized group, person of color, indigenous person, woman, queer person, transgender person, disabled person, neurodivergent person, your existence is political and you don't have the choice to make something political or not because it's been thrust upon you. It's part of your life. You do not have the privilege of just ducking under a rock to avoid the subject of politics because, like I said, your existence is political. And I want to talk a little bit about my political background and, you know, the things that are going on and share some perspectives about the hot fucking mess that is the United States of dumpster fire at this time. So, political background. Here we go. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school during the September 11th, 2001 tax, and that was a bit of an awakening for me. Um, I, I suppose my first awakening was the realization of my sexual identity not matching up with the socially acceptable constructs of the time, and that kind of started it, but it really kicked up after September 11, 2001, because it was at that point that I realized that our government was going to very much try and get us into a war, and that that was going to uniquely impact my generation, um, because, you know, it's, it's the teenagers that get recruited to the military, you know? So I was involved in some youth leadership organizations. I was fairly vocal about uh, things at the time, um, particularly matters of equality and what have you. I received a commendation from my local board of supervisors for some leadership work I did to petition to have particular regulations enforced and um, 
when I was in college round one, working on my associate's degree, uh, at 18 years old I met and fell in love with a man who was in the middle of a deployment in the Iraq war. Um, he was actually sent home on mid-tour leave. I won't discuss much of his personal circumstance, but uh, that connected me to politics very deeply because I was able to see up close and personal the impacts of war on the veteran and all of the problems that were present, you know, in terms of how much money we spend on the military and yet how little of that actually goes down to the service members on the front lines <laughs> literally sacrificing their lives and their mental well-being to try and protect their brethren and that got me very vocal and outspoken about the war in Iraq I joined my college Democrats because you know the at the time they were the anti-war party and I was also appointed to be a member of the Democratic Central Committee in my area. Uh, that's actually an elected position but there was a vacancy that I was appointed to by a liaison for our state representative. So uh, I, <laughs> that experience quickly disillusioned me with the world of organized party politics because every meeting felt like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, I saw that we were at war and there were so many just fucked up atrocities happening. And meanwhile, we're just sitting in a room arguing over whether we're going to attach our name to a letter to the editor. It was embarrassing. I quit. Um, <laughs> from there, um, later on in life, I... In the 2016 election, I worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign for president uh, as a volunteer. I did a lot of text banking, um, which is like phone banking where you call voters except you text them instead. And uh, that was actually a lot of fun. We organized a lot of um, community events where people got together and you know helped register voters and things of that nature. And after Bernie lost <laughs> the primary, at that point I started working on the campaign of a friend of mine who made history running for Congress, um, Misty Plowright, she's amazing, uh, was the first openly trans woman to win a major party primary for the United States House of Representatives. Uh, she did not win the general election because the district <laughs> that she was running in was very, very solidly and securely uh, in the bag for the incumbent, just based on the way that the district lines were drawn. But it was such an eye-opening experience, um, seeing a little bit into the belly of the beast as to how the official old guard Democratic Party elites, not not in the conspiracy theory elites, but in the, we've been doing this for a long time, so we're better than you, condescending sort of way. Uh, a lot of the problems with that, but also a lot of like the magic that can happen when you 
take the time to communicate with people who think differently from you in a patient and non-confrontational way. Because Misty talked to anybody. She would, <laughs> she would go to like local chapter meetings of like the Tea Party Patriots and asked their questions. And yeah, she earned a few fucking votes that way. Because one thing that I think we forget, particularly in the age of social media, instant mass communication, and that mob mentality that comes behind it is that people are people. And if you actually talk to them on their level, they're willing to listen and learn new things and change hearts and minds. And she was amazing at that. And she really, really inspired me. And, you know, not long after that, for completely separate reasons, I wound up moving back to my hometown, uh, which is in rural America, very much Trump country and started uh, <laughs> living amongst them and talking to people I normally wouldn't talk to and helping to understand them a little bit better and helping them understand things a little bit better that they frankly had not been exposed to and did not have frame of reference for. Now I know uh, every time tempers get flared because of some really fucked up atrocity like you know, Charlottesville, Minneapolis, and most recently with white supremacists and radical nationalists storming the Capitol building. <laughs> is that it's, it is outrageous. It is outrageous. But when we get stuck in that outrage, we tend to go to a defensive place of if you support this motherfucker, get the fuck off my page. Don't talk to me. Block me. I don't want to speak to you. I don't want to see you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And I get it. A uh, point of clarification here. I am currently not in communication with my own father due to his own aggressive outbursts in association with um, his radical right-wing views and his unwillingness to communicate uh, in a non-confrontational way about those things. So I, I fully support setting boundaries. I don't want to make it sound like I don't, but I also think that closing people off who think differently from you just exacerbates the problem because the people who think like that more often than not that's it's because it's all they've ever known and it's it's an entire mindset based on how they were raised the environment that they were raised in the things that they were exposed to the things that they were not exposed to and let's be clear you know mass communication and media and portrayals of marginalized communities over the decades definitely has a fucking role to play in those misconceptions as well but <sighs> straight out the gate i, I want to get one thing clear uh, privilege and oppression are not mutually exclusive my entire life has been funded and financed by systems of white supremacy I i'll explain a little bit more how that is later but the fact is, I directly benefit from 
systems designed through white supremacy and to up uphold and maintain white supremacy. And that's shitty. <laughs> really shitty. And at the same time, I'm also a woman. I am a queer woman. Um, pansexual is probably the most accurate label if you want to throw one of those on there. And I also have chronic illnesses, um, including mental illness and uh, physical ailments and endocrine disorder. And all of these things have marginalized me in many ways, particularly when it comes to the medical things. Like women, and especially women of color, their medical issues are ignored and made worse by this capitalist patriarchal healthcare system that we have in this country. So I am both very privileged and also relatively fucking oppressed. And it's not one or the other. It's not all or nothing. Uh, nuance exists when it comes to these matters. <sighs> so let me explain what I mean when I say I benefit from white supremacy. My family on my father's side, going way, way back, were plantation owners and slaveholders in Georgia. Uh, it's gross. My father seemed to think that it was okay that they were slaveholders because they were nice slaveholders. They, they were they were nice and the terminology he used I shit you not this is going to be upsetting because it is he said we took care of our farm equipment and the horrifying part is that it never crossed his mind how dehumanizing and cruel and just fucked up it was to refer to human beings as machinery in in the context of labor it, it's just unfucking real so the delusions start there the delusions start with well that's just the way things were but we were the nice slave owners so it's okay and that's where it starts right but civil war comes around slavery is no longer legal and all of a sudden you know this family does not have the wealth that is generated from free labor and that started to level the playing field a bit for them they no longer had that specific upper hand they had many others but i'm getting to that and as time went on things were made available to them to give them a foot up anytime my ancestors in recent history fell upon hard times, the government stepped in to help them. Uh, for, for example, uh, you know, back in, um, I don't want to give the wrong time date, but like, I want to say like 20s, there and abouts, <laughs> the last one, you know, 100 years ago one, uh, there were all of these uh, land grants to try and convince white families to move to areas like Oklahoma and Texas where um, recently there had been massacres and genocides and mass migrations forced upon the indigenous peoples of that area 
And so all these parcels of land were uh, divvied up and, and essentially given um, to white families so that they could be property owners. Um, and my family way back benefited from those programs. Uh, they were given that leg up from those programs. And again, <laughs> indigenous people were straight up murdered to make these programs exist. And uh, other people of color were explicitly excluded from receiving these of, of helps and handouts. And then because karma is a thing, the Dust Bowl comes around and all of the white people that claimed up all this farmland didn't know how to manage it correctly. <laughs> and you, you kicked out and murdered all the people who actually knew how to fucking manage it. Uh, so the Dust Bowl comes around and uh, all of a sudden with the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, the playing field is leveled once again. My family becomes very poor and is literally dirt poor, like living, living with a dirt floor, dirt poor. And, you know, this is something I actually, uh, they, they ended up migrating um, to places where opportunities were presented to them um, that again, were not presented to people of color. An example of that would be, uh, I was speaking to my grandmother about this, actually. Um, I interviewed her for a college project, and she remembers, um, looking back, she didn't realize it at the time, but they were literally dirt poor um, in her childhood. And in her lifetime, uh, they were able to build themselves back up again. Uh, and a lot of the reason for this was uh, the programs of the New Deal that were or, and like the GI Bill, for example, that were put into effect that allowed white families to start businesses and own homes and things of that nature that again, once more, people of color were explicitly excluded from. And so these opportunities were presented to my family where they went from being dirt poor to starting a business and all of a sudden owning a vehicle and then all of a sudden owning a television set and really like working their way into the middle class. Now, they're proud of this. They are so proud that they busted ass to build that business, to work their way up, to, to pull themselves out of poverty. And what they don't realize, because they're like, I worked hard, I am not privileged, I earned this blood, sweat and tears. What they don't realize is that those opportunities were presented to them and accessible to them explicitly because of the color of their skin. These opportunities were not made available to people of color. And so they, they never had the opportunity to pull themselves up out of poverty or build that generational wealth at, at every turn. And this is this went on, I mean, it's still going on to be very clear, but in, in much more overt ways, well up into the 70s, where, you know, with redlining and not being allowed to own property and not being able to own property in certain neighborhoods. And there are still, you know, shady fucking realtors out there who will not show houses or offer to show houses to people of color because they're trying to 
keep things segregated, to keep the property values and shit like that. So it's, it's a very real problem. And while I certainly understand that there are members of my family in their past who did in fact work hard for the things they owned, the reason that they were able to do that is because of support structures that valued white supremacy over the lives of people of color. And the fact of the matter is they're not particularly educated on these policies. They are not aware <laughs> that these policies and then of course later ones relating to, well, and earlier ones, um, what with Jim Crow, but all of these laws and rules and regulations that were put into place explicitly to make it harder for people of color to build and maintain generational wealth, to prosecute crimes differently, you know, like mandatory minimums, the, the difference in sentencing for crack versus cocaine is the same fucking thing. It just so happens that <laughs> statistically one group is more likely to use one than the other, but the sentencing is completely different. And I think we're seeing with this storming the Capitol, a light bulb go off in the heads of some people who are now seeing very visually and very openly what people of color and in marginalized communities have known all along, and that is that the response of law enforcement and criminal justice is very fucking different when you are a person of color versus when you are a white person because we saw what happened when the president wanted a fucking photo op during broad daylight with peaceful protesters. They got shot with rubber bullets and gassed off the fucking streets because that was about people of color and social justice and equality. And meanwhile, fucking neo-Nazis can storm the castle and the Capitol Police is complacent at best and complicit at worst. And that's kind of fucked up. And I hope that I hope that it does set the light bulb off for some people. I hope they do start to see that these disparities are so pervasive and happen at every level. I have a lot more to say about this, but this particular segment is running out of time. So I'm gonna take a little break here. And we're back. Sorry for the abrupt end. Hashtag mom life. So in regards to the riot at the Capitol building and all of that fun stuff, the frustrating, well, so much of it is frustrating, but another frustrating part of it is how obvious it was that something like this was going to happen. You know, ever since the 2016 elections, when Trump started holding his rallies, and 
not just condoning violence, but encouraging violence in the crowds. That was a pretty big red flag that, a pretty big indicator of what he would do if he was continue to allow, be allowed to have a platform and some power. And it should be a surprise to nobody that his words eventually caused actions because it's been happening all along. Hate crimes have been on the rise. It's just been happening in marginalized communities rather than with a bunch of well-connected well-off financially individuals on the floors of Capitol Hill. And it's a relief to know that he is finally being deplatformed and finally going to be done being president. I I don't necessarily believe that this is an end to the violence because I realize that a lot of these hate groups that he has egged on over the past few years are really excited with their accelerationist bullshit and uh, as the inauguration approaches I fully anticipate more fucked up shenanigans. I do hope that some of the consequences that are rolling out for the rioters at the Capitol, such as being placed on no-fly lists and losing their jobs, I I hope that that would discourage much more from happening. But there's, there's some factions of his supporter group that are militant and this is what they've been doomsday prepping for their whole lives and they are very much mentally committed to fucking shit up and I don't think that they will be dissuaded because that faction, those militia groups, those extremist terrorist groups they're committed to their cause. Uh, I I don't think that they will be dissuaded. I do hope that some of the more casual supporters who are enthusiastic for Trump because they liked the fact that he didn't self-censor, I hope that they are starting to see an eye-opening that, you know, words and actions do have consequences. And maybe, just maybe, they were backing the wrong horse. I do have hope for that. Like I mentioned previously, I live in Trump territory and <laughs> it's it's a lot it's a lot easier to find a Trump Republican around here than it is to find a leftist. That's for certain. And so, you know, I I've talked to these people I have shared space with these people and most of them, you know, militia factions aside, just really like that he doesn't self-censor and 
They think that there's a lot of pretentious bullshit that goes on in politics, which is fair, and a lot of sensationalist nonsense that stokes fear in people in the media, and that's also fucking fair. And there's, there's a lot of common ground there. It's just, with the prevalence of social media and the mob mentality that it helps foster, as with anything, it's a tool that can cause great harm or great good, just depending on how it's used. But one of the disadvantages is that groupthink mob mentality that happens when you're feeding off the energy of other individuals who are also frustrated and tired of not being heard or understood. And, and these particular ones, they definitely don't view themselves as racist. They truly believe that in their hearts they don't have any hate against people for the color of their skin, but they don't realize how much of the language that they use and the talking points that they revert to, how deeply those are steeped in and rooted in a design to perpetuate white supremacy. Like, many times they just don't fucking know. And I hope that we will see a fairly strong schism in the Republican Party separating the extreme alt-right crazies from the people who just don't fucking know any better and I hope we can help them learn instead of just endlessly berating and yelling at them because when we do that we just reinforce their preconceived notions of anything different from them. It's really hard but you have to sit down and have conversations and find out where they're coming from so that you can adjust your language and your approach to communication to explain to them the pieces of the puzzle that they're missing. Because here's the reality. If you live in a city, your life, your day-to-day operations, your mentality is fundamentally different from somebody who lives in a rural area. There's just different realities of life and you can't bridge that gap of misunderstanding by yelling at each other. You have to find the common ground and and build from there and help correct those misconceptions. And you know, it 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 sounds hard and it is some people are a little too far down the rabbit hole to be reasoned with but if you approach the conversation from a place of good faith you can change hearts and minds it is very possible and it's hard it's really hard but 
we kind of need to because as technology continues to evolve these information bubbles and echo chambers and rampant conspiracy theories are going to continue to be a pervasive part of our, our culture and that's only going to make these ideological divisions and the intensity with which people cling to those identities that much more aggressive so yeah I mean in case in case any of y'all were wondering where I sit on the political spectrum please know that the only reason I'm registered for the Democratic Party is to participate in their primary process uh, I do not align myself ideologically with the old guard elitist mentality of those in the DNC but I also cannot attach myself to the ideologies of the Republican Party when for so long they have accepted so much campaign money from hate groups parading as evangelicals to try and take away queer and trans rights and women's rights. I just, I just can't fucking get down with that. I'm sorry, I can't. But the thing is, we, we actually do all have more in common than we realize. When you break it down to the, to the root value level, you know, a lot of reason, a lot of the reason that there are women who are so strongly pro-choice and don't want to see any sort of government intervention in abortion comes down to a lot of the same reasons that you see gun rights activists wanting to be left alone in their choices in that regard. There's a, there's a lot of overlap and we have to learn how to have conversations where we ask questions in a, in a dialectic informing and educating each other sort of way as opposed to just regurgitating rhetoric from whatever echo chamber we happen to get our information from because when we're just repeating the same talking points it gets lost in translation we need to get down on the individual level and have individual conversations because with the exception of the extremists who have already been radicalized and have committed themselves to this path a lot of the people who are in the Trump camp or were in the Trump camp didn't have terrible intentions and I know that's hard for those of us on the left to hear because it's like he's obviously a racist. Trump is obviously a racist. It's a matter of public record. It's in his past. His father was a racist. He was a racist. There were plenty of lawsuits and he's on record saying racist things. And you know, when you grow up in a very white, very rural community, the mentality with that is, 
Like, yeah, I know he's fucking racist, but so is my grandpa, and I love that fucker. You know, it's that it's that whole hate the sin, love the sinner mentality. That, that's a lot of what you're dealing with here. And it, it definitely is a problem, to be sure. And I hope more people are seeing that now. But one of the ways that we can help more people see that and break away from that cult is to have conversations where we seek to understand and not to berate. Because (sighs) there is evil in this world, but there is also so much good and we can do so much more good in the world when we can communicate with each other and understand each other that that's the only way that we can actually affect real change so I realize this was kind of rambly I definitely have some big feelings when it comes to matters of injustice and you know if you are a follower of mine who identifies as conservative or as a Republican I want you to know that I don't fucking hate you for your politics I don't I I don't have room in my heart for that I have questions about some of your priorities And I'm sure we actually agree on a lot more than either one of us thinks. So I don't want you to feel like I'm kicking you out or I'm shitting on you or I'm talking down to you because I realize that the problem isn't with the regular people. A a lot of the problem comes from the narratives that we're fed and that's true on all sides. So. I'm sure I pissed some people off. I'm sure I'll lose some followers. And if you need to distance yourself, I respect that. But I think it's important to speak openly about these things, especially if we have a platform. Because we can really only affect positive change if we have uncomfortable conversations. So, that's all for this week. Hopefully, there will be nothing insane in the next week that prevents me from going on with my intended podcast subject. And uh, I hope to talk to you more next week just about uh, my business and how that's been going and kind of my specialty explain it it explain what I do a little bit better Um, because it's been going really well and I'm excited about it and yeah so thanks for sticking around I appreciate you and I hope that you have a day where you take care of yourself whatever that looks like